welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all the popes from St. Peter to Francis. And this is episode three, our very first actual pope to review. Oh man, are you excited? I'm kind of excited and kind of terrified because this is the pope that doesn't have a lot of historical background attached to him. Yeah, that that's going to be pretty much all of the early popes are going to have no historical background, but you're right. We are going to look at Peter, St. Peter, Peter the Apostle, Simon the Prince of Apostles, and these are just the first of many, many name variances of names that this guy has. So let's start there, I think, because although the world knows Peter as Peter, and we're going to be calling him Peter, it's also a lot more likely that his name was Simon. Was there another apostle named Simon and they had to differentiate? Is that what happened? Well, he has a couple different names. So he was either Simon or Simeon or Simon Peter. So there might have been another Simon. And then there's some that say he was known as Simon Peter of Cephas. And then there's other people who say he was called Petros and other people that say he was called Petra. So we don't really know, but for our purposes, he will be Peter. So what do you know about Peter? Uh, what do I know about Peter? Well, he joined Jesus's little uh, 12-man gang. Yes. He, at one point, tried to walk on water and had a panic attack about it and almost drowned. Yep. When uh, Jesus was going to get crucified, uh, a bunch of people were like, you know that dude? And he's like, no, I don't know that man. That's exactly what happened. Um, and then I don't, I don't know a lot in the middle there. There was something about a rock. Oh, there's so much about a rock. And then he was crucified upside down. That's also correct. Can we say that this is probably the Pope you know the most about? I would, I would consider that he is probably, besides like Benedict and a bit of John Paul II since I lived through that historical era probably the pope i know the most about and this is because for peter most of what we know about him comes from the bible yes i know some people are really not interested in the whole biblical history biblical analysis thing so that's not the direction we're taking with it we're gonna run with it we're gonna tell his story as it's given we're gonna comment on it but with not as much scholarly analysis about metaphor and allegory and all that and this is the only pope that we will need to source the, from the bible for so if this isn't your jam stick with us because there's a lot more to come still there's other popes 200 and some other popes that aren't in the bible 266 other popes and you will find something you like soon enough let's talk about peter so we know, based on information from his later life, that Peter was born around 99 BC and 1 AD in Bethsaida in Galilee, northern Israel, or Galantis in the Levant. Oh, okay, so he's, he's Jesus' age. Yes, yes, roughly around there. We know that his father's name was either John or Jonah, and that his brother is the Apostle Andrew. Oh, yeah, there's another apostle in the family. We also know that Peter was married, but we don't know to who, because she literally never gets a name, and we only know about her because at one point, Jesus would come and heal Peter's mother-in-law, who also doesn't get a name, by the way, so. <laughs> at least they cared enough to heal her. <laughs> but not to use her name, ever. We don't know anything about Peter's wife. At the time of Christ's ministry, the family, Peter's family, was living in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, with Andrew and Peter working together as fishermen on Lake Genesareth. And they were partnered with the future apostles, James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee, which has to be the greatest biblical name that I have ever heard. It is a pretty good one. I bet I could find a better one somewhere. Buried. Oh, the challenge is on now. So, Capernaum is where Peter and Andrew first encounter and interact with Jesus, according to the Bible in Luke chapter 5. 
Jesus is giving a sermon at Lake Genezareth while Peter and Andrew are out fishing. And they come back in to wash their nets after a particularly fruitless day of catching no fish. And Jesus speaks to them and gets into Peter's boat, asking Peter to take him out a little ways into the water. From here, he continues his sermon to the gathered crowd on the lakeside. And then he turns to Peter, telling Peter to take him out into the deeper water and cast out his nets again. Peter tells Jesus that they had been out all night and most of the day without any success of catching fish, but he decides to take Jesus at his word and complies anyways. Suddenly, they're catching all kinds of fish. Like, mad fish. More fish than they've ever seen in a day. They are catching so many fish that their nets are starting to tear and the volume is too much for the boat, so they have to bring Andrew's boat out to meet them and take some of the fish. Man, Jesus, that's just a waste of good produce. Right? By the time they're they're done, there is enough fish to fill the boats, both of them, almost to sinking point. We don't have a refrigerator. It doesn't sound like there's enough people gathered to take part in this. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are all completely amazed by this fat lot of fish. And Peter falls before Jesus and declares, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Basically, he sees himself as unworthy of this massive bounty of fish, or he's unworthy of the miraculous nature of it all, because he's an experienced fisherman who understands just how bizarre and unlikely this is. But Jesus tells him not to be afraid and says, From now on, it is men you will be catching. And then he leaves his wife. So with this, Jesus has his first four apostles, because at this moment, Peter, Andrew, James, and John drop everything. They leave everything behind so that they can go follow Jesus. I hope they pay child support, man. It also doesn't say whether they brought the fish along for the journey. No, they just left him there. Just a fish out to rot. Well, I'm sure his unnamed wife was like, well, someone has to feed the kids. With the literal chunks of fish. In being one of the first disciples, Peter is then present for most of the miracles that are performed by Jesus, like the feeding of the multitude, which is where the miracle- Also fish. Just wasting fish. Five loaves of bread and two fish feeding 5,000 people. And this is where I wonder if maybe they brought the fish with them. How else are you going to feed 5,000 people? No, it was it was some months later, so probably not. <laughs> then I hope they didn't bring the fish. Maybe they dried it. He's also there for the transfiguration on the eve of the crucifixion, where the two natures of Christ, the temporal and the eternal, become merged. And of course, he's there for the walking on water moment, like you mentioned. Now, when it comes to the walking on water miracle, this is where Peter starts to earn a bit of a reputation for being a vacillator in terms of his faith. I mean, he's not a doubting Thomas here, but he's got one of the strongest personalities of the apostles, and he likes to challenge things and question things. And we also see this is probably the reason that he will become the leader and the spokesperson of the apostles, because Peter is the guy who is willing to try things when other people are afraid to do it. The walking on water moment. After feeding the multitude in Galilee, Jesus sends his disciples away by boat into the Sea of Galilee towards Capernaum again, so that he can remain behind and pray alone. He should. They'll keep talking to him and asking questions if he doesn't. Yeah, he sent them away to shut them up. And while at sea that night, the boat that the apostles are on is beset by rough winds and waves, and even as experienced fishermen, this is really stressing them out. Then they see Jesus walking on the water towards them, and this terrifies them to their very soul. I mean, I would be freaked out too. Like, right? It's not just he's walking on water. It's like there's this huge storm that they're worried about. And then your friend Jesus comes across the lake. He's walking towards you on the water. I'd be a little freaked out too. I mean, I would be freaked out if Jesus came at me in a storm anyway. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's extra epic because of the storm. It would not be a calm time. So Jesus tells them not to be afraid. You know, it's, guys, it's just me type of situation. But they're still freaking out, and no one wants to get out of the boat. 
I imagine he doesn't say it very calmly. He's like across the stormy waters yelling, Don't be scared, guys! It's fine, I promise! So Peter calls out to Jesus, and he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. Which is a bit weird, but okay. It's a little like asking parental permission as an adult. So Jesus is like, yeah, sure, come to me. He tells Peter to walk out to him on the water, and Peter gets out of the boat and actually starts walking across the water. Then he starts to freak out again, having a panic attack, like you said, because of the storm, and he begins to sink, and he has to call out to Jesus to save him. Jesus saves him and kind of annoyedly admonishes him for his little faith, and they get back in the boat together and the storm stops. This whole time. It could have just stopped the whole time. Thanks, Jesus. This is read as Peter's doubt in his faith, even from Jesus. But to me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, because of all moments in your life, why would you doubt when you're literally walking on water? I feel like if you're walking on water, you'd be like, oh, because that's unnatural. Like when you go, okay, you you went up to the Sears Tower, right? Mm-hmm. Did you go out on the little glass thing? Yes. Okay. When you get out there and you're like, oh, and like, clearly you're not going to plummet to your death because you're in a three inch glass box, but also you're like, oh, imagine now if that were a miracle and you did fall to your death because you went, oh no. Like to me, this is a holy crap, I can't believe this is happening type of moment rather than actually being like, I don't believe. Yeah. And if that's enough to to make you sink, then it's not very nice. Moving on to the events leading up to the crucifixion, Peter, like all the apostles, plays a pretty big role in the events that come before the crucifixion of Jesus. He's at the Last Supper, and this is where we get one of the major things that Peter is known for. At the Last Supper, Jesus is foretelling his betrayal by Judas, and Peter then pipes up and becomes very self-righteous and indignant, and he proclaims that he would never, never, ever do that. He would never betray Jesus. Never. He's furiously condemning Judas, saying, on pain of death, I would never do that. You are garbage. Jesus turns to him and says, oh, yes, you would. And not only would you, you are going to do it three times before the morning. And Peter goes, no way. Mm-mm. Nope, never. I am never going to do that on pain of my life. And Jesus is just like, yeah, okay, dude. Jesus isn't buying it for a second. Cool story, bro. And then Peter must have been feeling a bit insecure because we have this move of huge overcompensation that follows. When the high priest comes to arrest Jesus, Peter grabs his sword and cuts the ear off the servant who had been sent. Jesus then tells him to put his sword away because he is ready for whatever is to come. So then they take Jesus away, and then Peter does exactly what Jesus said he would. Peter denies Jesus three times that night, mainly out of fearing for his own life or for being associated with what's going to happen to Jesus. So the first time, Peter is in the courtyard, and a young servant girl comes up to him and asks if he had been with Jesus. And Peter basically says, nope, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know who that guy is. Who? Denial number one. I love that they're, like, the first one is definitely just someone of no consequence, too. And the second one is also someone of no consequence because it's the same girl. <laughs> just again. She sees him a little bit later on, and she pushes him, and she's like, you are definitely one of the men who is with Jesus. And he swears at her. And denies it again. <laughs> this girl's gonna follow him around all night. No, really. I'm pretty sure it was you. And later on, some people who had, who had arrived again press him, saying that he had to be one of the men with Jesus since he had the Galilean accent like the rest of them. And Peter straight up denies knowing anything about Jesus at all whatsoever. So after this, he hears the rooster of the morning. And he realizes what he's done. He's done exactly what Jesus said he was going to do, the thing he would never do. And he completely breaks down. So in biblical readings, this is all about human infallibility and imperfection and our capability of doing nothing 
and our all-too-human need for self-preservation. This is to show us that Peter is a human, not the Christ-like Jesus, and he's being reminded of his own weakness. Or maybe he's just a dick. Some of the things we will cover later make me think that maybe he was just a dick. He's probably just a jerk. So then, Jesus is crucified, and Peter is the first man who sees the empty tomb. I specify here clearly because the first people to see it at all were Mother Mary and Mary Magdalene, who come out frantically to tell the others, who just straight up don't believe hysterical women. Oh yeah, they're like, nah, nah, that's not a thing. Exactly. Peter goes to see, and he finds the tomb empty with nothing in it but the grave clothes, and he's amazed. I'm I'm just, I'm still like, why did anybody not go, someone stole this body? Right? But he's amazed. He's definitely like, you know, he's he's very taken by this moment. Oh, the ladies, they told me a truth. And then he goes home and tells no one. This is just a really bizarre move. So everyone's waiting to hear what Peter's going to say when he goes into the tomb. Are the ladies telling the truth? And he just decides to go home. <laughs> well, can't explain that. Time to nap about it. He goes home to nap about it. That's exactly what happens. I, I guess everyone else found out in their own way. Then Jesus appears to Peter in his resurrected state, and he's given the chance to make up for his three denials by affirming his love to Jesus. And this is a quote. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others do? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, Look after my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that he asked him a third time, and said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. We've already determined that Peter will tell Jesus anything to his face. Right? Is anybody else asking him at this point if he loves Jesus? Were you with Jesus? <laughs> Where's that girl from last night? Where's that servant girl when we need her? I guess it was like three days prior to that. Where's she at? She's feeding the sheep. So then Jesus appears to the other apostles and confirms that Peter is going to be the head of the apostles with supreme jurisdiction over the church. Doesn't he have the stigmata right now? Jesus. I don't know when he has the stigmata. He makes someone touch his stigmata. Does he have it right at the first resurrection? I didn't read that. I don't remember. I just remember he makes someone touch it. It's doubting Thomas. Touch my stigmata. When, is, when does he make him touch his stigmata? I think this is I think this is when when he refuses to believe that Jesus has appeared to the other apostles. Oh, okay, cuz he wasn't there. Right. And just as a side note, maybe this is but I I'm just going to send you this Caravaggio painting that came up because it's <laughs> <laughs> not a gentle touching of the stigmata. He's like get this finger up in there. <laughs> Nothing Caravaggio paints is is at all gentle, but that has to be the best one. He's like knuckle deep in it, jeez. Yes, yes he is. He's knuckle deep in Jesus. <laughs> so with that, Peter becomes the head of the apostles. He appoints somebody to replace Judas and begins to perform duties that Jesus would have done, like the baptism of converts, preaching at the Pentecost, making decisions about preaching to the Gentiles, permitting the new church to be spread as gospel, and adjudicating cases like that of Ananias and Sapphira, who had stolen from the church. Peter passed judgment on them, and they fell down dead. What? He just... What? Yeah. He smote them. He smote the Wow. When did he get smite powers? I don't want this guy to have smite powers. When he became the head of the apostles. Who would... Oh. Don't give him smiting powers. He done smote it. That's terrifying. This man who can't make up his mind can now smote you dead. He also has some other miracles, you know. He uh, apparently healed two people who were infirm or paralyzed, and he raised a woman called Tabitha from the dead. Okay. So this is all reinforcing him as the head of the apostles. And uh, he didn't get confused later and then smite her? If he did, they left that out. <laughs> 
Now, before we move on, we need to talk about the whole rock thing. At the Transfiguration, when the two natures of Jesus were merged, Peter declares to Jesus that you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus replies to him, quote, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this quote is subject of massive, massive debate. And it is critical for our understanding of popes. The conventional view that has been passed down through the Catholic Church is that Peter is the rock. And this is when he took the name Peter instead of Simon. In this belief pattern, Jesus may have chosen him as the perfect embodiment of a forgiven sinner. He had denied Christ three times, and he had redeemed himself with his three affirmations, and this is the message that the church is meant to go on with. Peter would lead the apostles in the church. And this is the foundation of the idea of the apostolic succession, which is the ongoing supreme authority of the pope on earth. Through Peter, the pope gets his power. In most of the Protestant faiths, they have a completely different interpretation of this phrasing. In their version, it's Peter's statement of, you are the Christ, son of the living God, which is meant to be the rock of the church. It says that the faith in Christ that Peter displays is the pillar, for only Jesus could be the foundation or the rock of the church to foster a community. So how this statement is taken really depends on what religion someone identifies as, and we could do a whole podcast debating just this statement. We could. But I'd rather not. How boring. Yeah. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of theological debate and uh, I read enough already for this episode. For all intents and purposes in this show, uh we're going with the Catholic approach that Peter is the rock and Simon the rock Peter. Exactly. Now, with that out of the way, it's time for a fun side story about prison breaking. Ooh, <laughs> I don't know where this is going at all. You've never heard this story? I might have. So somewhere in this time, as Peter's becoming the head of the apostles, Peter is arrested by Herod Agrippa, king of Judea. Herod had been appointed to the position by Caligula and was fairly tight with the imperial family and was also a totally zealous persecutor of Christians. Herod is responsible for beheading at least one of the apostles, James. According to the biblical source, Acts 12, this pleased the Jewish people of Jerusalem greatly and encouraged Herod to go after Peter as well. So Peter gets arrested and imprisoned to await a public trial that would take place after Passover. While he's in prison, Peter is guarded by 16 men, four squadrons of four soldiers to prevent him from escaping. It's a lot. Yes, it is a lot for one single person. So the night before the trial, as the story always goes, Peter is sleeping in his cell, and he's bound up in chains with a soldier on either side of him. He's got chains, too? Is he, like, Jessica Jones? What's going on here? And all the other guards are still standing watch, so two are asleep on either side of him, and, like, that leaves, you know, 14 to be standing watch. Suddenly, an angel appears in the cell and wakes Peter up, telling him to hurry up, get dressed, and follow the angel. The chains that are binding Peter just fall away, and Peter obeys the angel. So the two are able to leave the cell, get out of prison, out into the street, past the gate, without any guard noticing them. There's no locked doors in their way, and Peter gets out onto the street, and the angel disappears. So this story makes it so that the angel itself isn't a terrifying, mind-breaking creature. Yes. However, at this point, when the angel disappears, Peter sort of wakes up from a trance. So maybe he was a little bit mind-broken. Got some psychic damage there. Yeah, he thought he was dreaming, and so suddenly he realizes he's actually freed and not hallucinating or having a lovely dream. He takes off, he goes to the house of one of the disciples, and is able to get away. Herod searches for him high and low, 
but there's no luck. It's a full-on prison break. Peter gets out of the city. He ends up in Antioch, Corinth, and finally Rome. The Liber Pontificalis says that while in Antioch, Peter served as the bishop for seven years before he moved on to Corinth and Rome. And there's also some suggestion that he still continued to be the patriarch of Antioch while in Rome. So that's up for debate. How far away is that geographically? Because it's not like they have the internet to be like, just instantaneous email, do this. It's in the boundary of what is today Turkey. Okay, so it's not super far, but it's not super close either. Considering that Thelonica to Bari, which is Greece to Italy, is a 24-hour ferry today, it's, it's a long time. There's also suggestion that he might have left his family in Antioch when he moved on to Rome, leaving them behind for the second time. God, this man. For somebody who is dedicated, he's not very dedicated. I'm glad that they made a rule that you cannot be married if you're going to be doing this. I feel like Peter is the reason for that rule. Oh yeah, Peter is definitely the reason for this rule. Okay, so Peter's in Rome. He made it to the place. He might have made it to the place. Because what we know about Peter's life in Rome is very little. You know, traditionally the church has accepted that Peter resided in Rome, but there is very little evidence to even prove that Peter was in Rome at all. Evidence given in favor of Peter being in Rome is often vague. In the first epistle that's credited to Peter, there is mention of him writing from Babylon, which is considered to be a reference of Rome, but in order for that to be taken as evidence, you have to be willing to accept that Peter is the author of the epistle, which is uncertain, and that the suggested interpretation of Babylon is actually Rome. So we gotta make some logic leaps. Yes, but there are some sources that make reference to Peter's presence in Rome. The Letter to the Romans, written by St. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch in the 2nd century, and St. Clement's Letter to the Corinthians, which we'll discuss a little bit later. Finally, there's Lactentius, who wrote a book called Of the Manner in Which the Persecutors Died. That is a name. Lactentius? That is a Roman name. Wow. So he wrote this book in about 318 and stated, And while Nero reigned, the Apostle Peter came to Rome and through the power of God committed unto him, wrought certain miracles, and by turning many to the true religion, built up a faithful and steadfast temple unto the Lord. And I guess that's as good as we can hope for 2,000 years later. Pretty much. But there is a source that kind of casts doubt on Peter's presence in Rome, and that's Paul's Epistle to the Romans, which is dated to 57, where Paul mentions many of the people he knows by name that are in Rome, but there's no mention of Peter at all. Well, was he dead by then? When does Peter die? 64. To me, this may be deliberate spite over the fact that Peter and Paul had fallen out. Oh, they're not friends. <gasps> they are super not friends, and we will cover that in Fructus Prohibitum. They had a bro fight. With all this in mind, with the vagaries and the maybe he was in Rome, maybe he wasn't, we have to keep in mind that at this point, Christianity was still effectively a cult in the Roman world. And persecutions are running pretty rampant, and most of what's being done for the Christians, or who's being kept for the Christians, or where people were, is all a pretty big secret. So it's entirely possible that the lack of evidence of Peter's time in Rome may be on purpose. It's hard to verify anything about Christians from this time, so it's not just Peter that we're casting doubt on. So they just, they didn't want someone to walk in and grab him. They could have been keeping it on the down low that he was in town. Except for Paul, who was like, I'm just not going to mention you because... I'm just going to mention every other Christian that I know. Yeah. Oh, are you a Christian too? Oh, I had forgotten. Because you're a dick. So what we can take from Catholic tradition is that at this time, Peter's in Rome, he founds the church in Rome, and he serves as the bishop there preaching the gospel publicly. Maybe he did this for a while with Paul. Maybe he did it alone. Maybe he authored two epistles to the people. But historians today think that's probably not true. Nevertheless, this is all going to be the backbone for the argument of apostolic succession, again. 
If Peter is the rock of the church, then those who follow him in the role he occupies as Bishop of Rome are going to have that invested power of the prime pillar of the church, and this is what makes him the first pope and the one that the legacy is built off of. Gotta be somebody. And to this day, every pope still wears a fisherman's ring as a mark of office, depicting Peter on his fishing boats. Circular friends, I mean keys, are also used as a symbol of papal authority, because Peter had been the one to receive the keys the keys to heaven from Jesus. So now let's let, let's talk about how Peter died. Because as you said, it's most likely that Peter died by crucifixion as a martyr in the Christian persecutions of Emperor Nero after the Great Fire of Rome. So this puts his death around 64-65 AD. Italian archaeologist Margherita Guarducci, which is a great name. Wow, I like that name too. That sounds like a pasta dish. Oh dear, if she ever listens, well, you sound like a pasta dish. Delicious. <laughs> a delicious pasta dish. Margherita Guarducci led the excavation of St. Peter's in Rome. And she places St. Peter's death on October 13th of 64, which would have put it right in line with the Dies Imperii. Was it a Friday the 13th? Uh, no, that was the Knights Templar. It was a Monday. Damn! I know. That would have been a sweet coincidence. It would. I needed to know. Everybody hates Mondays, especially Peter. She places Peter's death on October 13th of 64, which would have put it right in the Dies Imperii festivities of Nero, which is a celebration for the emperor celebrated on the anniversary of their imperium, and it's also three months after the Great Fire. So like a murder party? Exactly. Now we need to talk a little bit about why he would be having a murder party at his celebrations. If you want to know more about the Great Fire of Rome and how Nero handles the Great Fire of Rome, check out Totalis Rankium's Nero episode, because it's great. But in short, what we need to know is that the Great Fire broke out in the circus region of the Caelian and Palatine Hills, spreading fast on the wind and burning for about six days before it was stopped at the Esquiline Hill. Six days? Six days. That is a long time. It is an extremely long time, and it did an extreme amount of damage. Three out of Rome's 14 districts were completely destroyed, like wiped off the map destroyed, and seven were in real bad shape. So only four districts in the whole of the city were untouched. The Hearth of the Vestal Virgins, the Temple of Jupiter Stator, and the Atrium Vestae were all completely destroyed. And what happens in these situations when you have devastation on this scale is you tend to look for someone to blame. Emperor Nero laid the blame at the feet of the Christians because they were an extremely convenient scapegoat, considering that they were all still a grouping of outsiders who irritated the larger pagan community for being agitative, superstitious nuisances. So, that weird cult over there. When you have a fire that destroys more than half the city, there are good people to blame. And this is the first official, real persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire, and it would not even be close to the last. But there will be lots of time to discuss that in future episodes. Nero had a number of inventive ways he liked to persecute, torture, and execute the Christians, including feeding them to lions, and then he would also take people and cover them in wax and honey and then set them on fire to literally be candles and torches at his party. Ugh. Yeah, good party. That's a, not a party I want to attend. Me neither. But the most popular account of what happens to Peter is crucifixion. Upside down. Mm-hmm, upside down. And this is because he refused to be crucified in the same way that Christ had been, saying that he was unworthy of the same death. Despite the fact that we have almost no sources for Peter being in Rome, we have many sources accounting for Peter's death in Rome. We even have the prophetic epilogue in the Gospel of John, where Jesus basically foretells of Peter's crucifixion, saying, When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It's dark. It is pretty dark. Then we have Tertullian, 
in the prescription against heretics, claiming that Peter endured a passion like his lord, and that the budding faith that Nero first made bloody in Rome, there Peter was girded by another since he was bound to the cross. We have Jerome, who says, At Nero's hands, Peter received the crown of martyrdom being nailed to the cross with his head towards the ground and his feet raised on high, asserting that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his lord. Origen, in the commentary of Book of Genesis 3, and Eusebius, in Ecclesiastical History 3, both state that Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downwards, as he himself desired to suffer. How much more suffering is it upside down, though? Uh, well, have you ever hung upside down for a long period of time? You would pass out pretty fast. Funnily enough, in Japan, when, when Japan was persecuting the Jesuits, they liked to use a very similar method, but they would just leave them hanging there until they died, like just, just from pure blood pressure, and if they really wanted them to suffer, they would pierce their temple just to take a little bit of the blood pressure off and make it last longer. Apparently, it was awful. Because, like, regular crucifixion, you basically, like, crush your lungs. Yeah, so I don't know what would be worse, but suffice to say they're both pretty awful. It's not a good time. So a couple more sources on Peter and his death. We have a different Peter, the Bishop of Alexandria from the 4th century, recounts St. Peter's death in an epistle, saying, Peter, the first of the apostles, having been often apprehended and thrown into prison, often, yes, and treated with ignominy, was last of all crucified at Rome. And finally, Pope Clement I, who we will get some of the greatest extant church documentation from the earliest church days, Reference Peter's death in his letter to the Corinthians. Let us take the noble examples of our own generation. Through jealousy and envy, the greatest and most just pillars of the church were persecuted and came even unto death. Peter, through unjust envy, endured not one or two but many labors, and at last, having delivered his testimony, departed unto the place of glory due to him. Now, these are a lot of sources. Yeah. They're all fairly questionable, and a lot of historians have come up against them, saying that none of them are reliable. Wow! <laughs> There's one historian, Otto Zwierling, who would go so far as to state that there is not a single piece of reliable literary or archaeological evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. Is that a German guy? It would be a German guy. It is definitely a German guy, and considering what we're going to talk about next, I don't know if I agree with him. None of these sources are contemporary to Peter, though, so the further you get away from a historical event, the more you should question the authenticity of the account. So there's reason to think that maybe these sources are a little bit questionable. That's fair. But that aside, the alleged site of his crucifixion and burial is where the Clementine Chapel in the underground grottoes under St. Peter's Basilica of the Vatican stands today. They built the basilica over where he died? Yep, that is the spot. Okay. Although there are other sources who vehemently proclaim that Peter is buried in Jerusalem, Vatican Hill is traditionally the sourced site of his death and burial. St. Peter's Basilica, in its first form, was constructed by Constantine the Great to honor St. Peter in the 4th century, and this was the first major construction on the site which would be developed into St. Peter's Basilica slash the Vatican of today, starting in the 1500s. The first excavation of the site of Peter began in 1939, and in 1915, human remains were uncovered, and immediately everyone thought that they were those of St. Peter's, although at the time, nothing was confirmed. In 1961, the remains were forensically examined and determined to be from a male in his 60s, dated to the 1st century. So that could, theoretically. It sounds pretty good. So, in 1968, Pope Paul VI officially announced the remains to be, most likely, the relics of Peter, and so they have been considered so ever since. So much so that in 2013, Pope Francis revealed the remains, which are mostly bone fragments, Oh, I bet. to the public during a St. Peter's Square Mass. And that brings us to the end of Peter's life and his legacy and his relics. So let's see how he does when we rate him. All right. First rating. Oh. Yes. Okay. Here we go. Papatum infallium. A reminder, this is our category where we look at the overall success of the papacy. 
This is what we have for Peter. He either indirectly or directly makes Rome the site of primacy within the Catholic Church. He's definitely the prime apostle. He's given the keys to the kingdom by Jesus. Traditionally, he's called the Rock of the Church. He's taking over duties and responsibilities, appointing a new apostle to replace Judas. He's establishing what it means to be an apostle, which, by the way, means that you have had to have actually spent time with Jesus. That's, that's a tall order. Mm-hmm. After a certain point there. After a certain point, you then become a disciple, or some other terms that we will come across in our study here. Jesus adjacent. He establishes the role of the Bishop of Rome to have some temporal authority because he's judging cases, like the case of Ananias and Sapphira, which are the ones he smote down dead. His sermon at the Pentecost, celebrating the gift of the Holy Spirit, is considered the day when the church began its mission to the world at large. He convenes the Council of Jerusalem, deciding to embrace Gentiles into the church allowing them to be baptized and join the church without having to go through things like circumcision, and had a vision from God which allowed them to now eat animals that they had previously considered unclean. Bacon! Bacon! He's converting Gentiles and Roman pagans like Cornelius the Centurion in Caesarea, and he has a gift for taking care of and healing the sick and lame and even raising the dead. So... What do you think? What would you give Peter out of 10 in terms of success of the papacy? Huh. Well, for for someone who laid a lot of groundwork, I have to give him, like, an 8 or a 9. I, I would agree, and I would almost go higher, because I think this is where it all kicks off. If there is no Peter, there is no Pope. There is no papacy. There is no privacy of the Bishop of Rome. There is nothing that will carry on so he is the be-all and end-all to make this thing happen and i think that is one of the most successful papacies that you can have so i'm gonna give him a 10 gonna give him a 10 i'll i'll give him a 9 considering like we don't 100 percent know if he is a real man this is true and that's a fair score so that gives peter 19 for papatum and phallium Fructus prohibitum. In this category, we look at sin, sex, scandal, bad behavior. That's my Jerry Springer opening. Jerry Springer talks gentle, though. His opening credits sure don't. Have you seen them? It's like, I slept with my cousin and I don't care. I have, in fact, seen a Jerry Springer. So what did Peter do that is worthy of points for the forbidden fruit? Well... He left his wife and family to be a fisher of men. At least twice. At least twice. There's that. I don't know if we can give him credit for denying Christ three times that one night, but we can think about it if you think he deserves some points for that. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe the, the telling Jesus that he'd never do that to Jesus' face and then turning around being a big old dick about it. Maybe we could give him some points for that. Not really a scandal. It's not a scandal, but it's bad behavior. It is. But the biggest thing we need to consider in this category is his conflict with Paul, because they have a bro fight and a falling out. You have to tell me why. When Peter gets to Antioch after escaping Herod, he reconnects with Paul there, who had gone on to intermingle the Gentile Christian community. Is this before or after Paul went to Lesbos and went... Don't go there. They're crazy. Those lesbians do not like me. The lesbians don't want to hear anything I have to say. I wonder why, Paul. I think this is after. Paul has been in Antioch, and he is intermingling the Gentile community of Christians with the larger Jewish congregation, mainly through the act of sharing food together. This is how he's binding these two communities together as a united front for God. Is it bacon? It is not bacon, because this is not something that has been done before, mainly because of those Jewish dietary restrictions. They thought eating with Gentiles was foreign and weird, and so they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to be around people who ate bacon, basically. Paul has been working on this, and he's brought them together, and they're eating meals together. But he's not in Antioch when Peter arrives. 
And Peter gets there and he finds out what's going on, and he decides he's going to eat with this united group, which is taken as an act of support for the intermingling of the communities. But then more followers arrive, under the leadership of James the Apostle, the one who had been beheaded in Judea, and they oppose the united eating thing. They're not on board. They don't, they don't want any of that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. They're they're bringing this community together. They're working on union. This is love thy neighbor, brother they love. Potlucks are great. Who doesn't love a good potluck? Apparently James. <laughs> so James's people show up and they're like, nah, we got none of this. So what does Peter do? He pulls back. And after that point, he refuses to eat with the group as well. He's like, nah, you're right. Not on board. I'm withdrawing my support. And this leads to a complete fracture between the Jews and the Gentiles all over again. Oh my god. Just have your potluck. So Paul returns, and he finds that his efforts have been completely undone. That his party has been ruined. It is just an absolute madness. So he lays into Peter for being hypocritical and changeable. Like we didn't know that already. Exactly. And he accuses Peter of acting out of fear of the circumcised. Fear of the circumcised? Rude. That's a really rude thing to say. It is. But it's probably true. Peter is pulling back and not willing to commingle. And Paul is arguing that all men should be equal before God, and that Peter retracting his support and refusing to eat with them was against what they should have been preaching. They have a huge break, and from then on, Peter is the apostle for the Jews, and Paul is the apostle for the Gentiles, because they just won't have much to do with each other. So it's a pretty significant falling out. It is, but I think Peter did a, did a bad, did a wrong. Did him a heckin'... He did him a heckin'. <laughs> did him a heckin' bamboozle. Well, he did. He ate with them, and then he didn't eat with them. That is the heckin' bamboozle. So, with that in mind... What do you think that Peter should get for his bad behavior? About a score out of ten. Oh, God. With with this story about just being real rude, he's been rude the whole time. And he's a dick. I'm gonna give him a ten. You're gonna give him a ten? Yeah. I am gonna go significantly lower, because I know in the future we are going to be dealing with popes that wrote porn and had orgies and dug people up to put them on trial after their death, which is going to definitely need to hit that 10 for me. So I'm going to give Peter, like, a 4. A 4? I'm going to give him a 4 for being a dick, and save the big scandally spores for when we tackle all of the really, really scandally stuff to come. So we are going to give Peter a score of 14 for Fructus Prohibitum. For being a jerk. He is a jerk! Seculari impactum. So this is the category where we look at the effect on the everyday people, not just the church. So, at this point, there's really not much to say here, because Christianity is still a small cult population in Rome, who's seen as a general annoyance. But we could credit them and credit Peter for being a scapegoat that took the pressure off the general population after the Great Fire. If you want to give him any points for that. Eh. 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 So that's a a zero from you? I don't know. No, probably more like a three. You gonna give him a three? Yeah, he can have some points. Okay. He still did some good for the general population. Yeah, I'm gonna give him like... You know what? I'll match you. I'll give him a three. Because he he is starting something new. He is growing it. And even though it isn't affecting the general population now... His actions definitely will in the future, and he did probably save some other people from being persecuted for the fire. It's true. He took the heat off, so. What a terrible pun. That is a dad joke right there. I had to say it. So that is a six for Secularis Impactum. And now, Fossium Sanctus. In Facium Sanctus, we look at the portraits and depictions and descriptions, and we judge them on whether they're hot popes or not. We have a description of Peter as a oldish, thick-set man. Thick-set. A oldish, thick-set man with a combative face. He's got a douche face. He has a douche face. 
The earliest portrait to date that we have of Peter is from the 4th century, in the catacombs of Marcellinus and Peter in Rome. He's often depicted with circular friends. <laughs> yes. And funnily enough, in today, in most modern art or depictions of Peter, he's depicted as the keeper of the gates of heaven. But if you go back through traditional art, that is not the case. This is a totally modern invention. Oh, like the cartoony St. Peter up at the pearly gates? That's just... That's that. There is no historical version of that. I am going to now show Fry a photo of Peter, which she is then going to describe. Oh, you're going to end up with circular friends again. <laughs> there are circular friends in this photo. <laughs> because Peter is one of those, you know, as a biblical figure, he has been portrayed many, many times. So after we rate him based on this first photo, we're going to look at a couple more. Here is the first photo on which you are going to describe and judge for us. Oh, wow. Okay. He only has one circular friend. No, he's got two. I, I, they're just badly painted. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know how to describe this man. Okay. He's got a widow's peak and he's got a real... He's got like like a cartoon puff of hair in the front of his head. You will find that a lot of the early popes have that cartoon puff of hair. Is that a hairstyle from back then? Or is that just something painters did i'm not sure but it it is present a lot so what do you think of his expression <laughs> well his eyes are not looking at the same thing <laughs> to me he looks really annoyed he looks very annoyed i don't know if it's just his mustache like perhaps perhaps it's his mustache shape he looks irritated and disappointed simultaneously. You know, he kind of looks like, what's his name? The the king from Galavant. <laughs> oh god, what's his name? Isn't it Richard? Yes. What's the actor's name? Timothy Amundsen? He kind of looks like him. So what do you want to rate Peter out of 10 based on his looks here? On his look here, out of 10, as an uglier Timothy Amundsen? What does he get? He's gonna get, uh, well, all his facial parts are in the right place, so I'm going to give him a four. I'm going to strictly give him a two based on his douchey expression. So that gives him a six for facium sanctum. Okay, so I have now showed wow. Fry a couple more traditional photos of Peter, in which he is portrayed basically doing the same thing in all of them, and again... He just looks annoyed, especially in the Rubens. He's uh he's looking up and either to the right or left, depending on which photo I'm looking at. He's got some circular friends in this first one. And in the bottom one. They're attached to his bracelet. Oh, he's got circular friends in all of them. What's the significance of the yellow and blue? Is that his house colors? I think that's what traditionally they would wear, because for a long time, blue was considered a religious purity color instead of white. And the Rubens is much more recent, so... That one, he looks real annoyed. He just, he looks like he's rolling his eyes at someone. Please. Exactly. And now I am going to send Fry my favorite photo of Peter. And I noticed something very... It's actually a picture of Peter and Paul together. Are they in a fight? They could be. Let's see what you think. But there is something very specific that I noticed about these, and I want to see if Fry has the same reaction that I do. So here it comes. For our listeners' benefit, I am going to post these all online with the episode. Okay. Their faces, they're giving each other butterfly kisses. Their faces are very close together. Do you notice anything special about them? They have really small hands. Do they not look like Sailor Moon characters? <laughs> they kind of do. They have a little moon in their foreheads. You're right. I was trying, like, I couldn't explain that wrinkle properly. It's definitely, yeah, they're fighting evil by moonlight and winning love by daylight. They are definitely winning love by daylight in this photo. What's up with his beard, though? Someone does not know how to lines. <laughs> It's like, it goes straight down from, like, where it attaches, and then just at the bottom, the, the person was like, maybe I'll draw a cloud. Would you give him a better or worse score based on this photo? <laughs> based on this photo, he's gonna get, like, a two. I would almost have to give him a zero or a ten. I haven't decided, so that's why we went with the first one. 
So Peter receives a three for Facium Sanctum. I mean, it could be way worse. Tempus Pontificus. This is where we look at the length of the papacy, rounded to the nearest year, divided by four. And this one's a judgment call because there isn't actually an official pontificate. Like about 30 years, you would say? Like if he died in the 60s? Well, we're going to call the start of Peter's papacy at the time of the crucifixion and Jesus' death. So we know it's somewhere between 30 to 33 AD. Popular consensus for the official date circles around April 7th, 30 AD for the crucifixion. So that's the date we're going to go with. I thought it was 33. Well, there's a little gap. There, There is a gap. So we lost some years there. And the popular historical opinion is the 30 AD. So that's what we're going to go with. And the end of his papacy will be on the date of his martyrdom, which we know was between 64 and 68 AD. And since many people believe that he was martyred in Nero's great persecution after the fires, and Margarita Garducci gives us the date, we're going to go with 64. And this gives him the papacy of 34 years. It's not a bad run. This is the longest papacy that we're going to see in this series, unless Francis does something incredible. So he is going to get a score of 8.5 for Tempus Pontificus. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! So any pope that has been made a saint is going to get a bonus point here, and since he's Saint Peter... Man, he's the saintiest saint to ever saint. He is the most saint of the popes. So his saint feast day is June 29th with Paul. Oh, they have to share? They have to share. Oh, you can't be in a fight now. You have to share it forever. Exactly. So they have to share their feast day forever. They are both saints. The only relic associated with Peter beyond the bone fragments is a potential cross containing filings from Peter's chains, which were sent to the Queen of Oswy, who is the Anglo-Saxon king in Northumbria in 665. They have not been found since, so that's probably a lie. Yeah, that also seems like a really weird gift. Like, here, have some metal filings from... That was totally a thing that they did at the time. Traditional gifts are so strange. So he has some saintly symbolism. There is a cross of St. Peter, which is an inverted Latin cross, reference to his martyrdom. But upside down. And he is the patron saint of fishermen, net makers, shipbuilders, bakers, bridge builders, harvesters, Las Vegas, Rome. <laughs> Las Vegas. And Rome. And for frenzy and foot problems. Frenzy? Frenzy. If you have frenzy, you call upon Peter. Like if you're just, you're you're anxious and you're like, ah. Yes. Save me, Peter. Peter is your patron saint of frenzy. All right. And foot problems. That is a long list. <laughs> I know, right? That's a lot of things. I don't understand the baking. Uh, I don't either. I, I think that a lot of things that are looking for patron saints just go, Peter! So when all of that is tabulated together, that gives Peter a final score of 51.5 points. This takes us to our final category where we ask, does he have that extra interesting, extra memorable, mark on history, strong personality, possessed to be worthy of a papal bull? What do you think? Do you think... Peter should be our first papal bull winner to compete against all the other winners? Uh, well, considering he is basically a myth, probably not. And you wouldn't give it to him? No. Also, how are we gonna, how's he gonna rumble down if he, like, if he's in there with them? He can't just keep his circular friends. He might have to defend them. I don't know. I'm I'm tempted to give it to him because he is going to be one of the biggest names that we cover. It is a pope that everyone knows. He's depicted in more art anywhere else. And again, without him, we have no popes. So it's true. But to give him a bull, to out the gate to give someone a bull. Traditionally, usually the first ones tend to be one of the better ones that we'll see for a while. So. Whether or not that remains true it will be interesting to see, but I'm inclined to say yes. 
Are you sticking firm with no? All right, we can give him we can give him the bull. Are you convinced? It makes sense. And yes, I am convinced. All right. We can give him the bull. Congratulations, Peter. You are our first winner of a papal bull. All that's left to do now is our thank yous. So again, thank you to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for their support and encouragement getting this podcast started. We also need to give a shout out to the Greek History Podcast for shouting out about us and we really appreciate that. That was really nice. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. We're also on most major podcatching platforms including itunes pocket casts and podbean i think we're working on a few others we'll see if they show up or not you can also email us at pontifexpod at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you next week we're going to be covering a pope you've probably never heard of called linus oh with his blanket not a blanket not blanket linus not blanket linus <laughs> So with that, we say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.